Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the Horror Shots Podcast. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots Podcast with me, Casey. Now I want to start this show off the same way I do every other show, by doing a little bit of housekeeping. Now last week, I did mention that I was still running the contest for the free print from my shop on HorrorShots.com, and I've actually had a little bit of interest in the contest itself. So, I did draw out of the few contestants, not a whole bunch, but enough to make me think, hey, maybe people actually do listen to the show. I've had some kind comments in the last few days as well. And so, the winner will get a message via the form that they contacted me after I upload this podcast. I don't want to say their name because some people aren't too cool with having their name or whatever out there on the internet. If they say it's okay afterwards, I'll mention it next week. But until then, I do have a winner, and it was picked totally at random. Just want that out there so we know the rules are legitimate. Uh, of course, like I mentioned, you can visit me at horrorshots.com and send me a message if you do like the cast. If you have any stories, I'm still super interested in hearing about your paranormal stories. If you have any, anything that's ever happened to you, just you know, feel free to let me know and I'll feature it on the podcast. There's nothing better than the first-hand accounts. Try not to make anything up, though. I mean, it's hard to suss out what's real and what's fake on the internet as it is, so I'd really like to believe that anything that happens to you that you decide to tell me about is completely real. Next up, I do want to mention that I will be at Horror Rama in Toronto on Bathurst Street on November 3rd and 4th. I believe that's the weekend. And uh, you can grab your tickets at their website at horrorama.com. And I hope to see you there. Like I said before, I'll be there selling prints. I just got them today. They look fantastic. I'm very happy with them. They're 11 by 17, so they're big enough that you can hang by themselves on the wall and they'd be kind of cool. Or you could put them in a frame, and it wouldn't break the bank, and it wouldn't be too much of a hassle to put them in a frame either. So I think it's a good size. I'm really, really happy about how they look and how everything has turned out so far. I ordered them, like, yesterday, and they shipped today. So that's crazy, like, they got here today, not just shipped. But anyway, and like I said last week, if you do come and mention that you heard the podcast, you do get a discount. I'll figure out what that discount is. I don't know what it is, but it'll be something. I'll give you something off some some percentage if you will so i really hope to see a lot of you there on that weekend at horrorama that'll be a lot of fun and as always you can check me out on instagram and twitter at horror shots photography on instagram and horror shots pod on twitter now on to the show at hand last week we went over some classic slasher films did we not i think we did we went over the origins and what they mean in the horror genre itself. Now we mentioned how it started in Italy of all places with the gilo meaning essentially means a yellow stained paperback book and that kind of transformed into what is known as the slasher genre in film today. But the 60s and the 50s were far from the golden age of slasher flicks. 
No, that honor goes to the time frame of 1978 to 1984, which I think is a fair assessment, actually. It is all jump-started by the massive success of John Carpenter's Halloween, which is getting its very own 11th sequel, the second... No, sorry, the third second sequel, if that makes any sense. So you have Halloween, you have Halloween 2, and then you have Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, and now you've got this one, which is classified as Halloween 2 in the timeline. Try to wrap your head around that for a second. Took a little while for most people to get it. I kind of like what they're doing, because some of those Halloween movies were complete and utter nonsense, but... Regardless, the very first one in 1978 did kickstart the craze of the slasher. And that was what started the golden age of slasher films. And some scholars, yes, scholars, citing over 100 similar films released over that six-year period. Despite most films receiving negative reviews, many golden age slasher films were extremely profitable and established cult followings. Many films reused Halloween's template of a murderous figure stalking teens, though they escalated the gore and nudity from Carpenter's retrained film. Golden Age slasher films exploited dangers lurking in American institutions such as high schools, colleges, summer camps, and hospitals. Cashing in on the drive-in success of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974 and The Hills Have Eyes in 1977, the Toolbox Murders was quickly and cheaply shot, but did not generate the interest of the former films. Exploitative Killer's Delight is a San Francisco-set serial killer story claiming to take inspiration from Ted Bundy and the Zodiac Killer. Now, all this is taking place in 1978. Just want to clarify that. There's a timeline here. Leading up to Halloween's October release were August's Jally-inspired Eyes of Laura Mars, written by none other than John Carpenter. And September's Babysitter's in Peril-style TV movie, Are You in the House Alone? Of them, The Eyes of Laura Mars grossed $20 million against a $7 million budget. Influenced by the French New Wave, Eyes Without a Face in 1960, science fiction thriller Westworld in 1973, and Black Christmas in 1974, Halloween was directed, composed, and written by Carpenter, who co-wrote with his then-girlfriend and producing partner Deborah Hill on a budget of $300,000 provided by Syrian-American producer Mustafa Akkad. To minimize costs, locations were reduced and time took place over a very brief period. Jamie Lee Curtis, daughter of Janet Lee, was cast as a heroine, Laurie Strode, while veteran actor Donald Pleasance was cast as Dr. Sam Loomis, an homage to John Gavin's character in Psycho. Halloween's opening tracks a six-year-old's point of view as he kills his older sister, a scene emulated in numerous films such as Blowout in 1981 and The Fun House, also from 1981. Carpenter denies writing sexually active teens to be victims in a favor of a virginal final girl survivor, though subsequent filmmakers copied what appeared to be a sex-equals-death mantra. When shown an early cut of Halloween without a musical score, all major American studios declined to distribute it, one executive even remarking that it was not scary. 
Carpenter added the music himself, and the film was distributed locally in Kansas City theaters through Akkad's Compass International Pictures in October of 1978. Word of mouth made the movie a sleeper hit that was selected to screen at the November 1978 Chicago Film Festival, where the country's major critics acclaimed it. Halloween grew into a major box office success, grossing over $70 million worldwide and selling over 20 million tickets in North America, becoming the most profitable independent film until the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles surpassed it in 1990. This brings us to 1979. Though the telekinesis slasher Tourist Trap was initially unsuccessful, it had undergone a reappraisal by fans. 1979's most successful slasher was Fred Walton's When a Stranger Calls, which sold 8.5 million tickets in North America. Its success has largely been credited to its opening scene, in which babysitter Carol Kane is taunted by a caller who repeatedly asks, Have you checked the children? Less successful were Ray Dennis Steckler's burlesque slasher, The Hollywood Strangler Meets the Skid Row Slasher and Abel Ferreira's The Driller Killer, both of which featured gratuitous on-screen violence against vagrant people. Now we get into the 1980s. The election of Ronald Reagan as the 40th president of the United States drew a new age of conservatism that ushered concern of rising violence in film. The slasher film, at the height of its commercial power, also became the center of a political and cultural maelstrom. Sean S. Cunningham's sleeper hit, Friday the 13th, was the year's most commercially successful slasher film, selling nearly 15 million tickets in North America. Despite a financial success, distributor Paramount Pictures was criticized for lowering itself to release a violent exploitation film, with Gene Siskel and Robert Ebert famously deprising the film. Siskel, in his Chicago Tribune review, revealed that the identity and fate of the film's killer is an attempt to hurt its box office and provide the address of the chairman of Paramount Pictures for viewer complaints. The MPAA was criticized for allowing Friday the 13th with an R rating, but its violence would inspire gorier films to follow, as it has set a new bar for acceptable levels of on-screen violence. The criticisms that began with Friday the 13th would lead to the genre's eventual decline in subsequent years. The small-budget thrillers Silent Scream and Prom Night were box office hits with $7.9 and $14.8 million, respectively. Jamie Lee Curtis starred in the independent Prom Night, as well as studio films Terror Train and The Fog, to earn her Scream Queen title. MGM's The Halloween Clone, He Knows You're Alone, sold nearly 2 million tickets, though Paramount Pictures' John Huston-directed Phobia only sold an estimated 22,000 tickets. Two high-profile slasher thrillers were met with protest, William Friedkin's Cruising and Gordon Willis's Windows, both of which equate homosexuality with psychosis. Cruising drew protests from the gay rights groups, and though it predates the AIDS crisis, the film's portrayal of the gay community fueled subsequent backlash once the virus became an epidemic. Low-budget exploitative films New Year's Evil don't Go in the House and Don't Answer the Phone were called out for misogyny that dwelled on the suffering of females exclusively. Acclaimed filmmaker Brian De Palma's psycho homage, Dressed to Kill, drew a wave of protests from the National Organization for Women, 
who picketed the film screening on the University of Iowa's campus. The year's most controversial slasher was William Lustig's Maniac, about a schizophrenic serial killer in New York. Maniac was maligned by critics. Vincent Camby of the New York Times said that watching the film was like watching someone else throw up. Lustig released the film unrated on American screens, sidestepping the MPAA to still bring in $6 million at the box office. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho's influence was felt two decades later in The Funeral Home and The Unseen. Ridley Scott's successful Alien spawned his own sci-fi horror subgenre that included slasher films Scared to Death and Without Warning. The $86.4 million box office success of the Amityville Horror in 1979 spurred an interest in the supernatural, from the boogeyman to the Bigfoot slasher Night of the Demon. Joe D'Amato's gruesome Italian horror film Antrophosophagus and the Australian slasher Nightmares showed that the genre was spreading internationally. That brings us to 1981, as 1980 was a very busy year for the slasher genre. Slasher films reached a saturation point in 1981, as heavily promoted movies like My Bloody Valentine and The Burning were box office failures. After the success of Friday the 13th, Paramount Pictures picked up My Bloody Valentine with hopes to achieve similar success. The film became the subject of intense scrutiny in the wake of John Lennon's murder and was released heavily edited. Lacking the draw of gore, My Bloody Valentine barely sold 2 million tickets in North America, much less than the 15 million sold by Friday the 13th the year beforehand. Thematically similar to My Bloody Valentine, The Prowler hoped to lure an audience with gore effects by Friday the 13th Tom Savini, but large MPAA edits contributed to its failure to find a nationwide distributor. Suffering from similar censorship was The Burning, which also employed Savini's special effects. Though it does mark the feature film debuts of Brad Gray, Holly Hunter, Jason Alexander, Fisher Stevens, Bob Weinstein, and Harvey Weinstein. The Burning was a film named in Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse allegations. Just throwing that out there. Profits of Halloween of Friday the 13th drew studio interest to varying success. Warner Brothers, Eyes of a Stranger, and Night School, Paramount Pictures' The Fan, Universal Pictures' The Fun House, and Columbia Pictures' Happy Birthday to Me all brought in less than $10 million. CBS's TV movie, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, brought the genre to the small screen. Two sequels had bigger body counts and more gore than their predecessors, but not higher box office intakes. Friday the 13th Part 2 sold 7.8 million tickets and Halloween 2 sold 9.2 million. Both sequels sold around half of their original film's tickets, though they were still very popular. Halloween 2 was the second highest grossing film of the year behind An American Werewolf in London. Independent companies churned out slasher films, Final Exam, Bloody Birthday, Hell Night, Don't Go Into the Woods Alone, Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing, and Graduation Day, the latter of which grossed $25 million at the North American box office against a $200,000 budget. Fantasy and sci-fi genres continued to blend with the slasher film in Strange Behavior, Ghostkeeper, and Evil Speak. The international market found Italy's Absurd and Madhouse and Germany's Bloody Moon. 1982 brought us straight-to-video productions. 
to cut costs and maximize profits. The independent horror film Mad Men opened in New York City's top 10 according to Variety, but soon fell out of theaters for a much healthier life on home video. The dorm that dripped blood and the honeymoon horror each made for between $50 and $90,000 became successful in the early days of VHS. Because of this change, independent productions began having difficulties finding theatrical distribution. Girls' Night Out had a very limited release in 1982, but was re-released in 1984 in more theaters until finally finding a home on VHS. Paul Lynch's Humongous was released through AVCO Embassy Pictures, but a change in management severely limited the film's theatrical release. Films such as Hospital Massacre and Night Warning enjoyed strong home rentals from video stores, though Dark Sanity, The Forest, Unhinged, Trick or Treats, and Island of Blood fell into obscurity, with little theatrical releases and only subpar video transfers. Supernatural slasher films continued to build in popularity with The Slayer, The Incubus, Blood Song, Don't Go to Sleep, and Superstition. The supernatural-themed Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, though part of the Halloween franchise, does not adhere to the slasher formula, which is very true. Alone in the Dark was New Line Cinema's first feature film released to little revenue and initially dismissed by critics, though the film has gained critical appraisal. Director Amy Holden Jones and writer Rita Mae Brown gender swapped to showcase exploitative violence against men in the Slumber Party Massacre, while Visiting Hours pitted liberal feminism against macho right-wing bigotry with exploitive results. Friday the 13th Part 3, the first slasher trilogy, was an enormous success, selling 12 million tickets and dethroning E.T. from the top of the box office. The film's iconic hockey mask has grown to pop culture iconography. Universal Pictures had a tiny release for Death Valley, while Columbia Pictures found modest success with Silent Rage. Independent distributor Embassy Pictures released The Seduction to a surprising $11 million, an erotic slasher thriller that predates blockbusters, Fatal Attraction, and Basic Instinct. Now we're getting to the end of things with 1983, where traditional slasher films saw a less frequent output. The House on Sorority Row followed a similar plot to Prom Night in 1980, with guilty teens stalked and punished for a terrible secret. The Final Terror borrows visual and thematic elements from Just Before Dawn in 1981, as Sweet Sixteen borrows from Happy Birthday to Me in 1981. 1983's most successful slasher was Psycho 2, which reunited original cast members Anthony Perkins and Vera Miles. The film's victims were updated to pot-smoking teens, and with 11 million ticket sales, Psycho number 2 was a hit. 10 to Midnight, inspired by the real-life crimes of Richard Speck, promoted star Charles Bronson's Justice for All character above its horror themes. Robert Hiltzik's Sleepaway Camp was a home video hit, being unique for its pubescent victims and themes of pedophilia and transvestitism. Sleepaway Camp also featured homosexual scenes, which were taboo at the time. In Canada, whodunit curtains had a brief theatrical life before finding a new life on VHS. While criticisms towards American Nightmare's portrayal of prostitutes, drug addicts, and pornography addicts hurt its video rentals. 
Sledgehammer was shot on video for just $40,000, with a gender reversal climax showing Playgirl model Ted Pryor as a final guy. Other home video slashers from that year include Bloodbeat, Double Exposure, and Scalps, the latter claiming to be one of the most censored films in history. Releases began to distance from the genre. The poster for Mortuary features a hand that is bursting from the grave, though the undead have nothing to do with the film. Distributors were aware of fading box office profits, and they were attempting to hoodwink audiences into thinking long-shelved releases like Mortuary were different. Brings us to the climax in 1984. The public had largely lost interest in theatrical-released slashers, drawing a close to the golden age. Production rates plummeted and major studios all but abandoned the genre that only a few years earlier had been very profitable. Many 1984 slasher films with brief theatrical runs found varying degrees of success on home video, such as Splatter University, Satan's Blade, Blood Theater, Rocktober Blood, and Fatal Games. Movies like The Prey and Evil Judgment were filmed years prior and finally were given small theatrical releases. Silent Madness used 3D to ride the success of Friday the 13th Part 3 in 1982, though the effect did not translate to the VHS format. Friday the 13th, the final chapter, brought the saga of Jason Voorhees to a close with his demise, the main marketing tool. It did work, with the final chapter selling 10 million tickets in North America, hinting the franchise would continue even if Jason's demise marked a shift in the genre. The shift was emphasized by controversy from Silent Night, Deadly Night in 1984. Protesters picketed theaters playing the film with place cards reading, Deck the Hall with Holly, not Bodies. Despite other Christmas-themed horror films, including the same years Don't Open Till Christmas, promotional theatrical material for Silent Night, Deadly Night featured a killer, Santa, with the tagline, He knows if you've been naughty. Released in 1984 in November by TriStar Pictures, persistent carol singers forced one Bronx cinema to pull Silent Night, Deadly Night a week into its run. Soon widespread outrage led the film's removal with only 741,000 tickets sold. As interest in the Golden Age slasher waned, Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street revitalized the genre by mixing fantasy and horror in a cost-effective way. Craven had toyed with the slasher films before in Deadly Blessing in 1981, though he was frustrated by the genre he had helped create with The Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes because they had not benefited him financially. Developing A Nightmare on Elm Street since 1981, Craven recognized time was running out due to the decline in revenues from theatrical slasher film releases. A Nightmare on Elm Street, and especially its villain, Freddy Krueger, became cultural phenomenons. On a budget of just $1.8 million, the film sold over 7 million tickets in North America and launched one of the most successful film franchises in history. A Nightmare on Elm Street provided the success that New Line Cinema needed to become major Hollywood companies. To this day, New Line is referred to as the house that Freddy built. The final slasher film released during the Golden Age, The Initiation, was greatly overshadowed by A Nightmare on Elm Street, though both films feature dreams as plot points and a horribly burned Nightmare Man. The success of 
A Nightmare on Elm Street welcomed a new wave of horror films that relied on special effects, almost completely silencing the smaller, low-budget, golden age features. Next week, we will get into the Silver Age, maybe the Bronze Age, and then we'll probably round it out with the modern age and post-modern age of slasher films. I really hope you're enjoying the series. So far, it hasn't been my most popular one, but, you know, it could just been a bad week. If you want me to keep doing this, the slashers, I can. If you don't, let me know. If I don't hear from you, I'm just going to assume you like it, and I'm going to keep doing it. But if you don't like it and you want to hear something else, let me know. I can always change the way I do these casts. It's not set in stone. I'm not restrained by a boss of any kind. I am my own boss when it comes to these podcasts, so that's always fun. So if there's anything you want to hear about or learn about or have me look into, feel free to drop me a line on my website at horrorshots.com or through Twitter or Instagram at horrorshotspod on Twitter or horrorshotsphotography on Instagram. That does bring it all to an end for this week. I really hope you enjoyed it. And as mentioned, we do have a winner for the contest of a free print. So I will be contacting that person via the same way they messaged me. So until next week, phone up on your slasher lore and let me know who's your favorite villain. <laughs>